Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Some of you have probably seen um, or read Laura Hillenbrand's Sea Biscuit, an American Legend. Uh, this movie came out not too long ago. Uh, there's been several renditions of the historical account of this thoroughbred racing horse that went by the name of Seabiscuit. And as a racehorse, Seabiscuit had the pedigree and the promise of all the great giants in the thoroughbred racehorse industry arena uh, field where they compete and do what they do as they race. Um, he had, his grandfather was the great man of war. He was raised on the Kentucky bluegrass, Lexington, Kentucky. And he was, in 1938, if you could imagine this, he got more social media, more media presence than Hitler, Mussolini, and FDR in one year. A thoroughbred racehorse. All right. Seabiscuit was supposed to be the next big thing, the next big thoroughbred champion. But the first two years of his life and his racing career were anything but that. His first year, he ran 17 races, didn't, w- didn't win any of them, finished in the back of the pack, in fact, for just about all of them. In the second year, they tried to push him a little bit harder. They put him in 35 races, which is a, a grueling schedule for a thoroughbred. And he won five of those, but for the most part, nothing even really to take note of. It wasn't until a famous trainer, Tom Smith, saw Seabiscuit and took a very unorthodox and a different approach toward training him and working with this thoroughbred. And he immediately canceled all of his future matches and races. He said, pulled them out all together. Instead, he went back to his home, back to the farms where he was raised, and he took Seabiscuit there to just, to just run and to just be a horse again. And there's a really famous line in the movie, at least, I think this is a quote from uh, Hillebrand's de- depiction of this, but it says this, he said, I just can't help feeling like they got him so screwed up running in circles, he forgot what he was born to do, speaking of this horse. And some of you probably feel that way, maybe after a long day of work, a long week of work, some of us run Uh, through life with more speed than direction at times. Some weeks are a little bit more complicated and filled with different things than others. Uh, Some of you have heavy projects, events that you had to get through. Uh, Some of you probably heard of the Pareto Principle. 20% of the people typically do 80% of the work. Some of the 20% of you are nodding your heads and the 80% of you are saying, yep, go ahead, 20%. Uh, (laughs) Life is good. Um, it, it really is a, a real thing. You might have, might have heard of Pareto Principle in ministry, uh, the word for overworked ministry leaders, volunteers, and pastors is burnout. And it's a, it's a real thing. It's a thing that pastors struggle with every single year in ministry. Um, this sermon this morning, it's not for everybody. I want to talk really to the 20% of you that are doing 80% of the work. Uh, Many of you might need to hear something different. Maybe you need to hear Proverbs uh, 24, verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your want will come like an armed robber, like a bandit. 
nevertheless, there's a very real danger in constantly going, never stopping, always working. Uh, one pastor put it this way. He said, when we are crazy busy, we put our souls at risk. The challenge is not merely to make a few bad habits go away. The challenge is not to let our spiritual lives slip away. And so here's the question for us this morning. How do you, how do you work hard? How do you establish a good work ethic and not get so wrapped up and so busy about it that you forget about your priorities and, and the things that are really, really important? How can we guard our souls from spiritually slipping away when we get caught up into, into all of the things of life, all of the requirements, all the things to pay the bills, the work, the jobs, and everything that goes along with it? I want to give you three things from Exodus 18 this morning. And this is what we'll work through in our outline. Number one, beware of busyness. It is not a badge of honor. Busyness is not a badge of honor. Number two, learn your limitations. Man must know his limitations. Number three, serving people starts with setting priorities. Serving people starts with setting priorities. And Moses is going to learn this really the hard way in this chapter. Before we get there, I want to establish a little bit of the context here because Exodus 18 is strategically placed in the narrative of Exodus for a very specific reason. It's building up on a lot of the things that have taken place in the wilderness wanderings up to chapter 18. In Exodus 18, Israel is now arriving in Sinai. Uh, verse 5 of Exodus 18, I think it will, will call this place the mountain of God. Verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. This is going to function as a transition in the narrative now. Up until this point, we've been mostly in Egypt, in slavery with the Israelites, as Moses worked to liberate them and to redeem them through God's outstretched arm and his mighty hand. Then we transition to the wilderness setting. Uh, we're wandering in the wilderness. The people of Israel are murmuring, grumbling, complaining against God. And now he finally comes to the place where he will establish his miraculous presence with the people. He will meet with Moses at the mountain of God. And coming right after chapter 17, the battle with Amalek, Exodus 18 has a lot of similar themes in it. There's a lot of linking words between chapter 17 and now this transition in chapter 18. In both chapters, it describes people coming to Moses. In chapter 17, the people of Amalek come and they fight against Moses. In chapter 18, it's Israel that comes to Moses for knowledge. In chapter 17, Amalek came for war. In chapter 18, the people are coming for peace or how to keep the peace and different situations arise with the people of Israel. Both chapters also describe a growing heaviness Remember we looked at last week when, when Moses' hands were on the staff, his hands grew heavy. In chapter 18, now it's going to be the workload that Moses is carrying. That workload is growing very heavy upon him and upon his heart. What you might have noticed is a subtle buildup that brings us to chapter 18. I want you to look at a couple of verses here. Uh, I'll have these on the screen if you want to flip back in your Bibles, you can. Exodus 15, verse 26. Now remember, these are the murmuring stories this, in this uh, context. Israel is grumbling and complaining. They've gone three days without water. And so they grumble out to God and complain to Moses. And at the end of that story, it says this, Exodus 15, 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God 
and do that which is right in his eyes, because give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Now, hang on a second. We don't have the commandments and the statutes from God yet. We're not to Exodus 20 and the 10 and all the commandments and statutes that come after that. You can flip over a chapter in Exodus 16, verse 28. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Again, we don't have those. And so what's going on there? And that word for laws at the end of this verse, Exodus 16, 28, some translations won't have laws there. Some translations say instructions. Uh, that's your Hebrew word Torah, Exodus 16, verse 28. And Torah is a very interesting word. We talked about this last week, uh, journey ladies, if you were in the journey flock. Uh, most people think, we don't, we don't really know where the word Torah comes from. Most people think the best uh, idea that's out there is it's from the Hebrew verb yara. And yara literally means it's an it's a image, it's a picture. It's a, it's a pointing of the finger in the direction of where to go. And a lot of people see this uh, Torah as a pointing of the finger, and they think of a teacher who's, um, or a parent, perhaps, who's pointing his finger or her finger at their children and reprimanding them for something that they did wrong. Harold, why did you do that? That time of day and that way, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, Torah in the Bible is much different than that. Torah is a, a pointing of the finger, but it's pointing it to a path or a direction. Think of a guidepost. Uh, think of a map. You come to a fork in the road. A person who is living under Torah is pointed down the correct path to take. Sometimes that path is not the easy path. Sometimes it's actually the harder path. At all times, it's the path of righteousness. It's the path that leads you closer to God, to his perfect character and into his perfect will. And so we've got these vague little references to Torah through the wilderness wanderings. And it's all building up now to the point where God will present the Torah, the laws and the commandments and the statutes to the people through Moses, through the mediator. Remember in the murmuring stories, God was testing Israel. And the test was to find out if they would obey the commandments of God or not. He is preparing them for the time that he will give to them his law and his statutes, that they would walk in his way. God was also preparing Israel for the time that Moses would die. This is extremely important. God's law will live on in Israel longer than Moses will. His law will endure in the community of Israel. In Israel, uh, not too many people were more important than Moses. So when Moses takes the people for 40 years in the wilderness, around and around, and they finally get to the edge of the promised land, they're about to cross over in the river into the promised land, God says, Moses, hold on, you're not going to go over with the people. Your work here is done, right? And so all the people that have been led and liberated and, and mediated between God and man by Moses, now he's not going to be there anymore. And so we read another verse in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. This is a really key passage, and I wanted to bring it out because it's quoted a couple times in the New Testament, uh, most specifically in Romans chapter 10. It alludes to Deuteronomy 30. This is the, uh, the covenant blessing of keeping the commandments of God. And here's what it says. It says, this is Moses now. He's about to die. And he tells this to the people of Israel before they cross over into the promised land without him. Okay? 
He said, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, it is not on the top of Mount Sinai that you should say, who will ascend into the top of this mountain for us and bring it to us that we can hear it and do it. Moses is not going to be with them anymore. Who's going to go up and mediate and get the laws from God? Well, guess what? The law is not up there. You don't need Moses to go and get it for you anymore. He's given it to you. You can place it in your heart to listen to it and do it. The end of those verses, it says, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who should go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we might hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart so that you can do it. Again, the law of God will endure longer than Moses's earthly life. Moses will die, but the law will not die. So in Exodus 18, we're we're getting the uh, preparation for the people to receive the law that will endure past even their liberator. Um, Exodus 18 is is a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson for Moses. Moses is going to learn that personal heroics are not a sustainable model of leadership for the people of Israel. All the good things he could have done were not all the things that he should have done. And there was a lot of things that Moses could have done, a lot of things that he tried to do. Exodus 18 is going to help us as leaders put our priorities in order. It's going to help us to say no to the right things and yes to the right things. It's going to help us to understand what is the most important thing to do when there are a lot of things to do. And it's a great lesson for us, especially the 20% that are out there. Number one in your outline, number one this morning, beware of busyness. Busyness is not a badge of honor. Busyness is not a badge of honor. Look down at verse 13. We're going to skip the beginning part of this chapter. Uh, Really interesting, Exodus 18, 1 through 12, I hate to skip over this, but a lot of people think it's a conversion story. A lot of people think that Jethro is converted here at the beginning of Exodus 18. When we first met Jethro, he was a priest of Midian, He hears about what the Lord has done for the people of Israel through Moses. He offers sacrifices. He gives praises to the God, Yahweh, this God that Israel and Moses serves. So it could be that Jethro was was converted at this time. We really don't know. We don't have enough information there to know that for any certainty. But it is an interesting way to look at that text. I want to pick this up in verse 13 instead, and we're going to read verse 13 and 14. All right. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Imagine that if the speaker sat and all the people stood and listened. Brad, should we try it? (laughs) No, maybe one of these days I'll bring a stool, you know. Y'all be like, man, this is really boring. I need to sit down for a wheel. Um, Yeah, at, at this time in the Old Testament, the custom was, and into the New Testament in the first century, The custom was for the teachers to sit and students to stand and listen. That was the normal cultural practice at that time. Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around from morning until evening. You might pay special attention to that phrase, morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you again, from morning until evening. Now, let me ask you guys a question. How's your relationships with your father-in-laws? Good in-law relationships? 
in this context? This is a really interesting passage, right? And a really interesting family dynamic. Isn't it interesting that Jethro is all of a sudden an expert on how Moses should do his job? Has any of your father-in-laws come along, Brad? Man, hey, here's how you need to be a better pastor, buddy. I'm just going to show you how to do it and tell you right out, right at the top here. Moses just led the people out of bondage that they've been in for 430 years. And here comes a Midianite priest telling him how to do his job. What was going through the head of Moses? The reason is, is because of how obvious the problem was that Moses was facing. Even Jethro could see it. He was experiencing it. Moses' daily schedule was as long as a country mile. He worked harder than a junkyard dog. And the phrase from morning until evening is repeated, verse 13 and 14, for emphasis. That phrase occurs nine times in the Bible. Okay, you're going to hear it when it describes the work of the priest in the tabernacle. They worked from morning until evening. They were always standing. They were never sitting. It describes the farmer, the hardworking farmer in Ecclesiastes. The apostle Paul in his ministry, he ministered the word of God from morning until evening. It also describes God's presence with Israel. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night was with them from morning until evening. And it's called a Hebrew merism. You're taking two things that are apparently almost opposites or contrasted with one another. They're juxtaposed for a reason to describe a totality, a complete picture. Moses was working from sunup to sundown. Marwin, I know you ever do that in your construction work? And you get tired. He was burning it at both ends. He was burning the wick at both ends. He was going 90 to nothing. Jethro comes around and says, look, man, this is not good for you. This is extremely unhealthy. What's really hard about this is the work that Moses was doing. It's so admirable. It's so godly, and it seems so righteous, what he's doing for the people of Israel, right? Look down at verse 15. Moses said to his father-in-law, the people come to me to inquire of God. What am I supposed to do, right? When they have a dispute, they come to me. I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. One commentator put it this way, says, in these verses, Moses issues the first high court judicial system that would be replicated by the Roman law system in the entire Western world. What you have depicted for you right here in Exodus 18 is the beginning of our judicial system in the Western civilization and that the Romans built upon. One man put it this way, said, Moses is a prophet par excellence. He sets forth the model of administering God's law and God's justice for the next 1,200 years. The people are coming to Moses to seek God. The ESV says to inquire of God. That word doesn't simply mean to look around and see if they can find him. Israel was commanded to seek God carefully and to carefully seek the place where they would worship God. Speaking of Jerusalem, in the place of the future temple of God. Deuteronomy reminds us to seek the Lord with all our what? With all your heart. Chronicles divides Israel's history into two time periods. There were times when Israel was seeking the Lord, and there were times when Israel was seeking out idols. This is the same word that's used right here. Isaiah said that there is a great blessing for those who seek God's truth. The problem here is not the purpose or the content of what Moses was doing. The problem was the manner in which he went about it. 
Because Moses could do much, he did do much. Moses might have been one of those who, who viewed his work as a, as a badge of honor and his busyness as a badge of honor. Kevin DeYoung in his book uh, says this. I think I got it on this slide for you. Busyness does not mean that you are faithful or a fruitful Christian. Busyness does not mean that you are a faithful or a fruitful Christian. It only means you are busy just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul might be in danger. Busyness does not mean you are a faithful or fruitful Christian. It only means that you are busy. We've got to be able to look past this to priorities, to efficiency, to putting the right things in place at the right points in time. Number one, busyness is not a badge of honor. Number two, learn your limitations. Uh, verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, if you, if you highlight verses, really uh, verse 17 and 18 stick out in this text. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. Now, I want you to just stop right there. How long do you think it took Jethro to realize that what no, Moses was doing was not good? You think it took him really long? By the text, you, it kind of seems like it was like one day, right? Jethro comes out. He sees what Moses is doing. He describes what he's doing. He comes back, and they talk about it. Look, man, what you are doing is not good. Um, whatever the exact answer is, we don't know, but it's not a long period of time for Jethro to conclude this to Moses. Uh, his assessment is what you are doing is not good, and that Hebrew not good is at the very beginning of the sentence, again, for emphasis. Moses, his work was not good. It contrasts with God's work in creation that was good. Remember, Genesis 1 has this constant refrain, there was morning and there was evening on day one. There was morning and there was evening on day two. And here we got this morning and evening in Exodus 18. We've got a good work in Genesis 1. We've got a not good work in Exodus 18. Everything is contrasting God's work to Moses' work. And God eventually rested from his work, and God's work was good. You guys Clint Eastwood fans? Magnum Force, Dirty Harry. Oh, buddy. Man, everybody above the age of 55 just really perked up right there. I love it. I love it. Man, if you can shoot that 44 without, like, your hand falling off. I had a, I had a buddy named Kane, lived in Starkville, Mississippi, and we used to shoot pigs with 44s. Man, that was, that was a loud shot when you shoot that revolver, okay? Just in case you're not following me, just go look for Magnum Force. It's your assignment for the day, but just don't be busy about it, okay? Be strategic. Uh, Eastwood plays this uh, detective, Harry Callahan, right? Dirty Harry. And at the very end of the movie, one of his buddies, one of the guys on the force, uh, betrays him. He finds out that he's just as crooked as all the criminals that he's trying to find through the whole movie, right? And at the very end, he, he pulls off in that old jalopy car that he's got that's all dented up on the front end, and he thinks he got the last word with Dirty Harry, he drives off, and about five seconds later, there was a bomb in the car that just blew up. And there's this huge pot, you know, pillar of smoke that goes up from it, and like only Clint Eastwood can do. Man's got to recognize his limitations. Man's got to know his limitations, right? Um, Kevin DeYoung says this, 
our messianic sense of obligation, our messianic sense of obligation would be greatly relieved if we confessed more regularly what we are not. Our messianic sense of obligation would be more greatly relieved if we confessed more regularly what we are not. God is God, and we are not. Look down at verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you, and you are not able to do it alone. The repeated word takes us back up to verse 14. Alone. Moses, you're doing this alone, by yourself. Jethro does not just say you might wear yourself out. He says you will certainly wear yourself out. That's an intensified form of the verb in Hebrew. This is a guarantee that it's going to happen. And it's going to happen very quickly. New King James says this, you will, you will surely wear away. NIV translation says you will only wear yourself out. The Hebrew word for alone is, is derived from the word for carcass in the Old Testament. Guts and the vital organs uh, of a carcass physically wither and rot away. Alone has, has everything to do with emptiness and nothingness, right? The same word describes the leaves of a tree that's dead and, and about to fall off the branch just before it happens. It's dried up and it's withered. It's just hanging on. Everything about this passage tells us that God is God and we are not. He is infinite. We are finite. We need him daily for everything that we have, for a source of strength and establishing those priorities that are ultimately so important for us. And so, so we must learn our limitations. Exodus chapter 18. Business is not a badge of honor, number one. Number two, learn your limitations. We're all finite human beings. Number three, serving people starts with setting priorities. Serving people starts with setting priorities. Jethro doesn't just point out what's wrong, and I love this. He gives a solution to the problem. He doesn't just leave Moses wondering what to do about it. He helps him with his next steps to change the things, the patterns that he had developed. All right, so look down at verse 19. Now obey my voice, Jethro says. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And you can, again, you can kind of see the beginning of the law of God coming to the people through Moses, right? Uh, right now, Moses is going to establish and he's going to judge those cases, but pretty soon they're going to have a written law that specifically provides information on those cases, Right? in which they should walk, and which they must do. Verse 21, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide between themselves. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this, Jethro says, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. Now, we learn a, a few things right off the bat, very applicable things from Moses and Jethro here. The first is this. The hardest person to lead is often yourself in life. 
And so when you think about leadership, when you think about taking on added responsibilities, even the callings that God has given you to serve people, to serve in the church, to serve in your workplace, to serve in your marriages, your friendships, your relationships, the most difficult person to lead is often yourself. Kaplan, you've probably heard that name before, says this, a true leader inspires others to lead themselves. This is why Roosevelt's man in the arena speech is, is so powerful. It's the people that are in the fight. It's the leaders that are actually in there getting dirty with the sweat coming down their face. It's to these that the great things will come in life. But notice, Jethro doesn't change Moses' job description at all. In fact, how he describes what Moses is supposed to do under his assistance and his guidance is almost the exact same of how Moses described what he was doing earlier in the context. Verse 20 is very close to Moses' description in verses 15 and 16 of this chapter. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk. Moses said to him, verse 15, because the people come to me, inquire of God, they have a dispute, they come and I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. In essence, Jethro tells Moses, listen, keep leading the people. You are leading them, so keep doing that. He validates his vocation. He confirms his calling. He affirms the direction that God has given to him in his life and over Israel. It's verse 19 that strikes me the most in this. Verse 19 says, Obey my voice, and I will give you advice. And so Moses, here's the deal. Your very first job as a teacher in Israel is to remain teachable. Your very first job as a leader is to listen to other leaders. Your first job as a leader is to listen One man has said, if you lose the will to listen, you lose your leadership. Great leaders are first great learners. Moses was learning that from Jethro in a good context. Socrates says this, if he was the wisest man in Athens, it was only because he alone assumed that he didn't have all the answers. There's a humility and a teachability that goes along with being a strong leader that you're always learning, you're always growing, you never fully arrive. Remaining teachable is an attitude. Orrin Woodward put it this way, a know-it-all attitude is the death warrant of achievement. We never arrive. We never fully know it all. Because what? God is God and we are not. And so Jethro instructs Moses and Moses listens. He learns. He's teachable, even from Jethro, even from his father-in-law. Number two, Great leaders develop other great leaders. Great leaders are in the process of leadership development. Great leaders develop other leaders. Verses 21 and 22, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Leaders reproduce leaders. Listen, Moses had Joshua. Joshua will carry the torch forward from Moses. Paul had Timothy. Jesus had his 12. He had his three, his inner circle. And then he had the beloved disciple, John, who was his closest that he invested the most time into. You don't just invest into anyone. Jethro tells Moses specifically the types of people, the quality of people. He wants, he wants him to look for men of character who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. They're honest men. 
that can't be bought. Their integrity isn't for sale. Their character isn't for sale. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul says something very similar to Timothy. He says, The things I have taught you in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. Not just any men, but faithful men who will be able to instruct others as well. And so there's a command here that leaders reproduce other leaders, develop other leaders. But there's also some dangers to avoid. And the first is this. This comes right out of Crazy Busy. I really encourage you to read it. Three dangers to avoid. Busyness can ruin your joy. I think, I think we've got to avoid some things here. We take some things from Jethro's counsel, but we also avoid some things. And here's the first thing that we're going to avoid. A busyness that ruins our joy. The Christian life is a life that is to be marked by joy, by the fruit of the Spirit, not necessarily by busyness. Love, joy, peace, patience, busyness, it ain't in there. <laughs> Gentleness, self-control. <laughs> busyness is not a badge of honor for the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. Busyness is like sin. Remember Jonathan Owens said, be busy about killing sin, or sin will be busy about killing you. Be busy about killing busyness. If you never have time, there might be a, an issue with priorities in your life. And what is the most important for you? Number two, busyness can not only ruin your joy, busyness can rob your heart. For most of us, for most of us in this room, it's not going to be uh, dreadful heresy and false doctrines that will destroy our Christian lives. For most of us in this room, if anything's going to destroy our Christian life, it's probably going to be the worries of this life. It's probably going to be the concerns of the world. It's probably going to be things like finding our identity in the things of this world rather than finding our identity in the things of Christ and in the things of his word. It's probably going to be having this I can do everything no matter what, go get them all attitude until something happens that stops you in your tracks and God forces you to slow down and not carry forward that busy lifestyle. Busyness can absolutely rob your heart. And the third warning here, a danger to avoid, is that busyness can rot your souls. One of the great dangers to busyness is that busyness often disguises other deeper issues in your life. People appeal and they go to the things to keep them busy so they don't have to think about the more fundamental things that God is trying to do in their heart, in their life. Often, that's the case. Um, and I, I'll tell you, I know that from personal experience. It's easy. It's easy for me to go away and do something when I know that God's working on my heart and I should just be slowing down, listening, praying, reading his word, confessing, repenting, and the things that are much more important to God. Busyness can rot your souls. And so be aware of these dangers to avoid. 